Hey everyone, welcome to week nine of the Intro GIS podcast. I'm Dr. Rebecca Shakespeare, and this podcast is mostly reading from the textbook Essentials of Geographic Information Systems by Campbell and Shin, 2011. This text was adapted by the Sailor Academy under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share-Alike License. As such, this podcast is shared under that same license. This week is Chapter 8, Geospatial Analysis 2, Raster Data. We'll talk about geoprocessing with rasters, scale of analysis, and two types of surface analyses, spatial interpolation and terrain mapping. It'll be helpful to have the textbook open while you're going through the examples. Uh, there's a lot of times where I'll indicate what figure to look at so that you can keep up with some of the more complicated visual parts of raster analysis. So with that, sit back, relax, or pick up your pace, and we'll get started with uh, chapter eight, Geospatial Analysis 2, Raster Data. Chapter eight, Geospatial Analysis 2, Raster Data. Following our discussion of attribute and vector data analysis, Raster data analysis presents the final powerful data mining tool available to geographers. Raster data are particularly suited to certain types of analyses, such as basic geoprocessing, surface analysis, and terrain mapping. While not always true, raster data can simplify many types of spatial analyses that would otherwise be overly cumbersome to perform on vector datasets. Some of the most common of these techniques are presented in this chapter. Section 8.1, Basic Geoprocessing with Rasters. The objective of this section is to become familiar with basic single and multiple raster geoprocessing techniques. Like the geoprocessing tools available for use on vector datasets, raster data can undergo similar spatial operations. Although the actual computation of these operations is significantly different from their vector counterparts, their conceptual underpinning is similar. The geoprocessing techniques covered here include both single-layer and multiple-layer operations. Single-layer analysis. Reclassifying or recoding a dataset is commonly one of the first steps undertaken during raster analysis. Reclassification is basically the single-layer process of assigning a new class or range value to all pixels in the dataset based on their original values. You can look at the figure 8.1 to see an example of raster reclassification. For example, an elevation grid commonly contains a different value for nearly every cell within its extent. These values could be simplified by aggregating each pixel value to a few discrete classes. For example, 0 to 100 could be listed as 1, 101 to 200 could be listed as 2, 201 to 300 could be listed as 3, and so on. This simplification allows for fewer unique values and cheaper storage requirements. In addition, these reclassified layers are often used as inputs in secondary analyses, such as those discussed later in this section. As described in Chapter 7, Geospatial Analysis 1, Vector Operations, 
Buffering is the process of creating an output data set that contains a zone or zones of a specified width around an input feature. In the case of raster data sets, these input features are given as the grid cell or group of grid cells containing a uniform value. For example, buffer all cells whose value is 1. Buffers are particularly suited for determining the area of influence around features of interest. Whereas buffering vector data results in a precise area of influence at a specified distance from the target feature, raster buffers tend to be approximations representing those cells that are within a specified distance of the target. You can see figure 8.2, raster buffer around target cells, for this visualized. Most geographic information systems programs calculate raster buffers by creating a grid of distance values from the center of the target cells to the center of the neighboring cells, and then reclassifying those distances such that a 1 represents those cells composing the original target, a 2 represents those cells within a user-defined puffer area, and a zero represents those cells outside of the target and buffer areas. These cells could also be further classified to represent multiple ring buffers by including values of three, four, five, and so forth to represent concentric distances around the target cells. Multiple layer analysis. A raster dataset can also be clipped similar to a vector dataset you can look at figure 8.3 to see an example of this. Here, the input raster is overlain by a vector polygon clip layer. The raster clip process results in a single raster that is identical to the input raster, but shares the extent of the polygon clip layer. Raster overlays are relatively simple compared to their vector counterparts and require much less computational power. Despite their simplicity, it is important to ensure that all overlain rasters are co-registered, so spatially aligned, cover identical areas, and maintain equal resolution, having the same cell size. If these assumptions are violated, the analysis will either fail or the resulting output layer will be flawed. With this in mind, there are several different methodologies for performing a raster overlay. The mathematical raster overlay is the most common overlay method. The numbers within the aligned cells of the input grids can undergo any user-specified mathematical transformation. Following the calculation, an output raster is produced that contains a new value for each cell. You can see an example of this in figure 8.4. As you can imagine, there are many uses for such functionality. In particular, raster overlay is often used in risk assessment studies, where various layers are combined to produce an outcome map showing areas of high risk or high reward. The Boolean raster overlay method represents a second powerful technique. As discussed in Chapter 6, when we talked about data characteristics and visualization, the Boolean connectors AND, OR, and XOR can be employed to combine the information of two overlying input raster datasets into a single output raster. Similarly, the relational raster overlay method utilizes relational operators, like greater than, greater than or equal to, equal, 
less than, and less than or equal to, to evaluate conditions of the input raster datasets. In both the Boolean and relational overlay methods, cells that meet the evaluation criteria are typically coded in the output raster layer with a 1, while those evaluated as false receive a value of 0. The simplicity of this methodology, however, can also lead to easily overlooked errors in interpretation if the overlay is not designed properly. Assume that a natural resource manager has two input raster datasets she plans to overlay, one showing the location of trees, here zero would equal no tree, and one would equal a tree, and one showing the location of urban areas, zero shows not urban, and one is urban. If she hopes to find the location of trees in urban areas, a simple mathematical sum of the data sets will yield a 2 in all pixels containing a tree in an urban area. Similarly, if she hopes to find the location of all treeless or non-tree non-urban areas, she can examine the summed output raster for all zero entries. Finally, if she hopes to locate urban treeless areas, she will look for all cells containing a 1. Unfortunately, the cell value 1 is also coded into each pixel for non-urban tree cells. Indeed, the choice of input pixel values and overlay equation in this example will yield confounding results due to the poorly devised overlay scheme. The key takeaways from this section are Overlay processes place two or more thematic maps on top of one another to form a new map. Overlay operations available for use with vector data include the point in polygon, line in polygon, or polygon in polygon models. Union, intersection, symmetrical distance, and identity are common operations used to combine information from various overlaying datasets. Raster overlay operations can employ powerful mathematical, Boolean, or relational operators to create new output datasets. Now that you're familiar with raster overlay analysis, think about your own field of study. Describe three theoretical data layers that could be overlaying to create a new output map that answers a complex spatial question, such as, where's the best place to put them all? Depending on the time you have right now, you could pause this podcast and go and find raster or vector datasets related to the question you just posed, or bench those ideas for another time when you have more time available to look things up. Section 8.2, Scale of Analysis. The objective of this section is to understand how local, neighborhood, zonal, and global analyses can be applied to raster datasets. Raster analyses can be undertaken on four different scales of operation, local, neighborhood, zonal, and global. Each of these presents unique options to the GIS analyst and are presented here in this section. Local operations. Local operations can be performed on single or multiple rasters. When used on a single raster, a local operation usually takes the form of applying some mathematical transformation to each individual cell in the grid. For example, a researcher may obtain a digital elevation model with each cell representing eleva elevation in feet. If it is preferred to represent those elevations in meters, 
A simple arithmetic transformation of each cell value can be performed locally to accomplish the task. In this case, each cell would have its original elevation, which is in feet, multiplied by 0.3048, with the resulting value of the new elevation in meters. When applied to multiple rasters, it becomes possible to perform such analyses as changes over time. Given two rasters containing information on groundwater depth on a parcel of land at year 2000 and year 2010, it is simple to subtract these values and place the difference in an output raster that will note the change in groundwater between these two times. You can look at figure 8.5 for this example. These local analyses can become somewhat more complicated, however, as the number of input rasters increase. For example, the universal soil loss equation applies a local mathematical formula to several overlying rasters, including rainfall intensity, erodibility of the soil, slope, cultivation type, and vegetation type to determine the average soil loss in tons in a grid cell. Neighborhood Operations Tobler's first law of geography states that everything is related to everything else, but near things are more related than distant things. Neighborhood operations represent a group of frequently used spatial analysis techniques that rely heavily on this concept. Neighborhood functions examine the relationship of an object with similar surrounding objects. They can be on a point, line, or polygon vector dataset, as well as on raster datasets. In the case of vector datasets, neighborhood analysis is most frequently used to perform basic searches. For example, given a point dataset containing the location of convenience stores, a GIS could be employed to determine the number of stores within 5 miles of a linear feature, for example, within 5 miles of Interstate 10 in California. Neighborhood analyses are often more sophisticated when used with raster datasets. Raster analyses employ moving windows, also called filters or kernels, to calculate new cell values for every location throughout the raster layer's extent. These moving windows can take many forms depending on the type of output desired and the phenomena being examined. For example, a rectangular 3x3 moving window is commonly used to calculate the mean, standard deviation, sum, minimum, maximum, or range of values immediately surrounding a given target cell. The target cell is the cell found in the center of the 3x3 moving window. The moving window passes over every cell in the raster. As it passes each target cell, the nine values in the 3x3 window are used to calculate the new value for that target cell. This new value is placed in the identical location in the output raster. If one wanted to examine a larger sphere of influence around the target cells, the moving window could be expanded to 5x5, 7x7, and so forth. Additionally, the moving window need not be a simple rectangle. Other shapes used to calculate neighborhood statistics include the annulus, wedge, and circle. You can see examples of those in figure 8.6. Neighborhood operations are commonly used for data simplification on raster datasets. 
an analysis that averages neighborhood values would result in a smoothed output raster with dampened highs and lows as the influence of the outlying data values are reduced by the averaging process. Alternatively, neighborhood analyses can be used to exaggerate differences in the data set. Edge enhancement is a type of neighborhood analysis that examines the range of values in the moving window. A large range value would indicate that the edge occurs within the extent of the window, while a small range indicates the lack of an edge. Zonal operations. A zonal operation is employed on groups of cells of similar value or like features, not surprisingly called zones, like land parcels, political or municipal units, water bodies, or soil and vegetation types. These zones could be conceptualized as the raster versions of polygons. Zonal rasters are often created by reclassifying an input raster into just a few categories. Zonal operations may be applied to a single raster or to overlaying rasters. Given a single input raster, zonal operations measure the geometry of each zone in the raster, such as area, perimeter, thickness, and centroid. Given two rasters in a zonal operation, one input raster and one zonal raster, a zonal operation produces an output raster, which summarizes the cell values in the input raster for each zone in the zonal raster. There's a picture of this at figure 8.7 in the textbook. Zonal operations and analyses are valuable in fields of study such as landscape ecology, where the geometry and spatial arrangement of habitat patches can significantly affect the type and number of species that can reside in them. Similarly, zonal analyses can effectively qualify the narrow habitat corridors that are important for regional movement of flightless, migratory animal species moving through otherwise densely urbanized zones. Global operations. Global operations are similar to zonal operations, whereby the entire raster dataset's extent represents a single zone. Typical zo global operations include determining basic statistical values for the raster as a whole. For example, the minimum, maximum, average range, and so forth can be quickly calculated over the entire extent of an input raster and subsequently can be output to a raster in which every cell contains that calculated value. You can see an example of this in figure 8.8. .8. Key takeaways. Local raster operations examine only a single target cell during analysis. Neighborhood raster operations examine the relationship of a target cell proximal surrounding cells. Zonal raster operations examine groups of cells that occur within a uniform feature type. Global raster operations examine the entire aerial extent of the dataset. Now that you know a little bit more about scales of analyses, Go back and look at figure 8.6 that lists common neighborhood types around a target cell, including a 3x3 square, a circle, an analyst, and a wedge. What are cases where this might be an appropriate representation of neighborhood for a specific analysis? Section 8.3, Surface Analysis, Spatial Interpolation. The objective of this section is to become familiar with the concepts and terms related to GIS surfaces, 
how to create them, and how they are used to answer specific spatial questions. A surface is a vector or raster data set that contains an attribute value for every locale throughout its extent. In a sense, all raster data sets are surfaces, but not all vector data sets are surfaces. Surfaces are commonly used in geographic information systems to visualize phenomena such as elevation, temperature, slope, aspect, rainfall, and more. In a GIS, surface analyses are usually carried out on either raster datasets or TINs, triangular irregular network, but isolines or point arrays can also be used. Interpolation is used to estimate the value of a variable at an unsampled location from measurements made at nearby or neighboring locales. Spatial interpolation methods draw on the theoretical creed of Tobler's first law of geography, which states that everything is related to everything else, but near things are more related than distant things. Indeed, this basic tenet of positive spatial autocorrelation forms the backbone of many spatial analyses. Creating Surfaces The ability to create a surface is a valuable tool in a GIS. The creation of raster surfaces, however, often starts with the creation of a vector surface. One common method to create such a vector surface is from point data via the generation of Thiessen or Vonroy polygons. Thiessen polygons are mathematically generated areas that define the sphere of influence around each point in the dataset relative to all other points. Specifically, polygon boundaries are calculated as the perpendicular bisectors of the lines between each pair of neighboring points. The derived Thiessen polygons can be used as a crude vector surface that provides attribute information across the entire area of interest. A common example of Thiessen polygons is the creation of a rainfall surface from an array of rain gauge point locations. Employing some basic reclassification techniques, these Thiessen polygons can be easily converted to equivalent raster representations. You can look at figure 8.10 for an example of a vector surface created using Thiessen polygons. While the creation of Thiessen polygons results in a polygon layer whereby each polygon, or raster zone, maintains a single value, interpolation is a potentially complex statistical technique that estimates the value of all unknown points between the known points. The three basic methods used to create interpolated surfaces are spline, inverse distance weighting, and trend surface. The spline interpolation method forces a smooth curve through the set of known input points to estimate the unknown intervening values. Inverse distance weighting, sometimes abbreviated IDW, interpolation, estimates the value of unknown locations using the distance to proximal known locations. The weight placed on the value of each proximal location is in inverse proportion to its spatial distance from the target locale. Therefore, the further the proximal point, the less weight it carries in defining the target point's value. Finally, trend surface interpolation is the most complex method as it fits a multivariate statistical regression model to the known points, assigning a value to each unknown location based on that model. Other highly complex interpolation methods exist, such as Krieging. 
Krieging is a complex geostatistical technique similar to IDW that employs semivariograms to interpolate the values of an input point layer and is more akin to a regression analysis. The specifics of Krieging methodology will not be covered here, as this is beyond the scope of this text. If you want more information on Krieging, there are some texts that review approaches to Krieging that you can see in the textbook. Inversely, raster data can also be used to create vector surfaces. For instance, isoline maps are made up of continuous non-overlapping lines that connect points of equal value. Isolines have specific monikers depending on the type of information they model. For example, elevation, they're contour lines. For temperature, they're isotherms. For barometric pressure, they are isobars. And for wind speed, isotacks. Figure 8.11 shows an isoline elevation map. As the elevation values of this digital elevation model range from 450 to 950 feet, the contour lines are placed at 500, 600, 700, 800, and 900 feet elevations throughout the extent of the image. In this example, the contour interval, defined as the vertical distance between each contour line, is 100 feet. The contour interval is determined by the user during the creation of the surface. The key takeaways from this section are Spatial interpolation is used to estimate those unknown values found between known data points. Spatial autocorrelation is positive when mapped features are clustered and is negative when mapped features are uniformly distributed. Thiessen polygons are a valuable tool for converting point arrays into polygon surfaces. Now that you're familiar with spatial interpolation, think of one or two phenomena in the real world that exhibit positive spatial autocorrelation, or a lot of clustering. Now think of one or two phenomena in the real world that are very evenly distributed, or exhibit negative spatial autocorrelation. Section 8.4, Surface Analysis, Terrain Mapping. The objective of this section is to learn to apply basic raster surface analyses to terrain mapping applications. Surface analysis is often referred to as terrain or elevation analysis, when information related to slope, aspect viewshed, hydrology volume, and so forth are calculated on raster surfaces such as digital elevation models. In addition, surface analysis techniques can also be applied to more esoteric mapping efforts, such as probability of tornadoes or concentration of infant mortalities in a given region. In this section, we discuss a few methods for creating surfaces and common surface analysis techniques related to terrain datasets. Several common raster-based neighborhood analyses provide valuable insights into the surface properties of a terrain. Slope maps, which you can see in figure 8.12, are excellent for analyzing and visualizing landform characteristics and are frequently used in conjunction with aspect maps to assess watershed units, inventory forest resources, determine habitat suitability, estimate slope erosion potential, and so forth. 
They're typically created by fitting a planar surface to a 3 by 3 moving window around each target cell. When dividing the horizontal distance across the moving window, which is determined via the spatial resolution of the raster image, by the vertical distance within the window, measured as the distance between the largest cell value and the central cell value, the slope is relatively easily obtained. The output raster of slope values can be calculated either as percent slope or degree of slope. Any cell that exhibits a slope must, by definition, be oriented in a known direction. This orientation is referred to as aspect. Aspect maps use slope information to produce output raster images, whereby the value of each cell denotes the direction it faces. This is usually coded as either one of the eight ordinal directions, north-south-east-west, northwest-northeast, southwest-southeast, or in degrees from zero, nearly due north, to 360, all the way back to due north. Flat surfaces have no aspect and are given a value of negative one. To calculate aspect, a 3x3 moving window is used to find the highest and lowest elevations around a target cell. If the highest cell value is located in the top left of the corner, top being due north, and the lowest value is in the bottom right, it can be assumed that the aspect is southeast. The combination of slope and aspect information is of great value to researchers such as botanists and soil scientists because sunlight availability varies widely between north-facing and south-facing slopes. Indeed, the various light and moisture regimes resulting from aspect changes encourage vegetative and edaphic differences. A hillshade map represents the illumination of a surface from some hypothetical user-defined light source, presumably the sun. Indeed, the slope of a hill is relatively brightly lit when facing the sun and dark when facing away. Using the surface slope, aspect, angle of incoming light, and solar altitude as inputs, the hillshade process codes each cell in the output raster with an 8-bit value from 0 to 255, increasing from black to white. As you can see in Part C of Figure 8.12, hillshade representations are an effective way to visualize the three-dimensional nature of land elevations on a two-dimensional monitor or paper map. Hillshade maps can also be used effectively as a baseline map when overlain with a semi-transparent layer, such as false color digital elevation model. Viewshed analysis is a valuable visualization technique that uses the elevation value of cells in a digital elevation model or a triangular irregular network to determine those areas that can be seen from one or more specific locations. The viewing location can be either a point or a line layer and can be placed at any desired elevation. The output of the viewshed analysis is a binary raster that classifies cells as either one, visible, or zero, not visible. In the case of two point viewing locations, the output raster would be two, visible from both points, one, visible from one point, or zero, not visible from either point. Additional parameters influencing the resultant viewshed map are the viewing azimuth, horizontal or vertical, and the viewing radius. 
The horizontal viewing azimuth is the horizontal angle of the view area and is set to a default value of 360 degrees. The user may want to change this value to 90% if, for example, the desired view shed included only the area that could be seen from an office window. Similarly, vertical viewing angle can be set from 0 to 180. Finally, the viewing radius determines the distance from the viewing location that is to be included in the output. This parameter is normally set to infinity. Functionally, this includes all areas within the data set under examination. It may be decreased if, for example, you only want to use the area within a 100-kilometer broadcast range of a radio station. Similarly, watershed analyses are the series of surface analysis techniques that define the topographic divides that drain surface water for stream networks. In geographic information systems, a watershed analysis is based on the input of a filled digital elevation model. A filled digital elevation model is one that contains no internal depressions, such as would be seen in a pothole, sink wetland, or quarry. From these inputs, a flow direction raster is created to model the direction of water movement across the surface. From the flow direction information, a flow accumulation raster calculates the number of cells that contribute flow to each cell. Generally speaking, cells with a high value of flow accumulation represent stream channels, while cells with a low flow accumulation represent uplands. With this in mind, a network of rasterized stream segments is created. These stream networks are based on some user-defined minimum threshold of flow accumulation. For example, it may be decided that a cell needs at least 1,000 contributing cells to be considered a stream segment. Altering this threshold value will change the density of the stream network. Following the creation of the stream network, a stream link raster is calculated, whereby each stream segment or line is topologically connected to stream intersections or nodes. Finally, the flow direction and stream link raster datasets are combined to determine the output watershed raster, as seen in Part B of Figure 8.13. Such analyses are invaluable for watershed management and hydrologic modeling. The key takeaway from this section is nearest neighborhood functions are frequently used on raster surfaces to create slope, aspect, hillshade, viewshed, and watershed maps. Now that you know a bit about terrain mapping, think back to when we talked about hillshade maps. How are slope and aspect maps utilized to create that hillshade map? And here's another thought exercise. If you were going to build a new home, how might you use a viewshed map to assist your effort? <laughs>